You're listening to a live recorded teaching from the Sunday Gathering at the Heights Church in Denver, Colorado. We hope that this teaching is an encouragement to you. To find out more about the Heights Church, visit theheightsdenver.com. Uh, man, well, very good morning to you. We're calling 2023 the year of life together. Just trying to highlight some uh, members of our church that give so much and contribute so much. And so thank you so much, Emily, if you're in the room. Thank you for serving. Uh, this is, like I said, the year of life together. And to kick off this year, we're diving into Acts chapter 2 and looking at the birth of the very first church. And we're examining 11 of the core practices that the very first church oriented their life together around and going, man, how do we just do those same things here? So here's the conviction. We are not trying to do something new and cool and edgy around here. We are going all the way back. We're doing something rooted and powerful and ancient here. We're looking at these 11 practices going, man, we want to give, our, give ourselves to the very same things. Last week, uh, we looked at a devotion to the apostles' teaching. That's core practice number one. This week, we're looking at a devotion to community. So congrats, you're here. Today is Community Sunday. We're talking about how to build the community that we all long for. Everybody wants it. Very few people, we're going to talk about this, very few people feel like, man, I really have it and I love it. How do we build it here? How do we remove the barriers to it? The Harvard professor and political scientist Robert Putnam wrote a book on the collapse of social activity and communal life in America called Bowling Alone. Any of you ever seen Bowling Alone, read Bowling Alone? Off to a great start here. Yeah, it's like, yeah, really relatable. Off to, you know, I love it. Uh, And he, basically the premise of the book is on the collapse of communal life. And he takes the collapse of bowling leagues in America and says, Americans are bowling alone, right? Any of you in a, a bowling league, you know? Yeah. Uh, my, my grandmother was in a bowling league. Bowling leagues are, very, are not very common anymore, and that's the point of his book. He says this in Bowling Alone. Something important happened to the social bonds and civil engagements in America over the last third of the 20th century. This is 1970 to about 1999. He wrote this, and I believe... 2000, early 2000s. Uh, During the first two thirds of the century, Americans took a more and more active role in the social and political life of their communities, uh, in churches, in card tables and dinner tables. Keep in mind, this is a Harvard professor. I'm I'm not feeding you pastor lines right here. So he's talking about churches, card games, having people over to your house, like that's what he, very broad. Um, so Americans took a more and more active role in the social and political life of their communities in churches and card tables and dinner tables. Year by year, we gave more generous, generously to charity. We pitched in more often on community projects. And insofar as we can still find reliable evidence, we behaved in an increasingly trustworthy way toward one another. Then, mysteriously and more or less simultaneously, we began to do all of these things less often. And the book is full of charts Uh, fascinating charts about the collapse of social life in America. I brought some of these uh, graphs to show you. The point is not to, for you to be able to read this, but to watch, watch all of these social lines going down and to the right, like not good. Uh, This one up here, uh, can we go back to the first one? This one's about the rise and fall of the PTA, the Parent Teacher Association. This one's about active organizational involvement, people just jumping into organizations. Club meeting attendance dwindling, going down to the right. Trends in church attendance going down to the right. We'll go to the next one. I told you there's a lot of charts. This is union membership in the United States. Uh, so this is all about like work relationships and unions. Average membership rate in eight national professional associations. So like lawyers aren't getting together with lawyers as much anymore to talk about work. Uh, this one is uh, average 
times entertained at home the last year. This is people having people over to their house. They're measuring that. It's going down and to the right, down to the right. People aren't having people over as much anymore. This is card playing and other leisure activities, so people don't get, a, get together and just like play cards. Like, hey, you want to you know, come over and play some cards later? Like, we, don't, we just don't do that as much anymore as we used to. This is the decline of neighboring. This one measured, I, I read about this one, this one measured uh, the number of people who had just a neighbor that lives in their neighborhood over for a social activity, Right? down to the right. And this one right here is what the book is based on, the rise and decline of league bowling in the United States. So it's just, you see the cliff there. That's what the whole uh, book is based on. We've, the point is we've retreated into our own little worlds. It's easy uh, to even look at the church and the decline of church attendance in the United States and think that it's related to all, all the trends like uh, deconstruction and secularism and all that. But likely, likely, this is what's fascinating about this, it's more due to like the communal habits of Americans than it is to like theology, right? We just don't do life together as much as we used to. This is the cultural water that we swim in. That's my point in showing you. This is the cultural water we swim in. Isolation, individualism, we are not good at life together, and we feel this, it's destroying us. It's destroying us. It's not good. Down to the right in the social charts is not good. We want those things going up into the right. Uh, with the fall of communal life comes the rise of loneliness. And with the rise of loneliness that we all feel comes all kinds of sadness. All kinds of sadness, and we feel it. We feel more lonely than we ever have before. Uh, in her book, Find Your People, any Find Your People, Jenny Allen fans? Okay, yeah, okay, good. Thank you, thank you, ladies. I know, I know, uh, I know. she's like the it gathering lady, so you probably heard of Jenny Allen. Great book. Hi, if you're like looking for your people, if you want better community, Find Your People by Jenny Allen. It's a great book. Uh, I gave it a good skim this week. She describes this so vividly, this feeling of isolation and loneliness. She says this in her book. We spend our evenings and weekends tucked into our little residences with our little family or our roommates or alone, staring at our little screens. Feel that? It's like I got my iPad, watching the football game, you know. We make dinner for just us and never want to trouble our neighbors for anything. We feel a small little crevice called home with everything we could possibly need. We keep our doors locked tight and we feel all safe and sound, but we've completely cut ourselves off from people outside our little self-protective world. We may feel comfortable and safe and independent and entertained, but we also feel completely sad. We also feel completely sad. You feel that. You're like, man, I just want some friends. I want people around. I was talking to a therapist friend recently who told me that she thinks many of the 20-somethings, she sees primarily uh, people in their 20s, uh, she thinks that many of the tw people in their 20-somethings that she sees are paying her not for therapy but for friendship. Uh, this is really sad because we don't know how to have friends anymore, so we pay for them. This is what she told me. She goes, man, I'm not having, thera I'm not, I'm not having therapy conversations with you. Therapy is important. We, we believe in therapy here. But she goes, I'm not having therapy conversations. I'm having conversations that just like friends should have. So we just pay for friends. And living in the city, you feel this. It often exacerbates this where we experience this odd thing of being surrounded by millions of people. Or you experience this in this room right now. You're surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of people and yet we feel totally alone. Like, are there people that love me? Do they care? Do they see me? We're lonely. Research shows that more than three in five Americans report being chronically lonely 
and that number is on the rise. So even if you're hearing this and you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not lonely, you need to look around the room and kind of like wake up to this reality that three out of five of people in this room right now have felt this likely in the last week. Like, are there people that care about me, that know what's going on in my life? And while the stats on loneliness rise, you know this, so do the stats on anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts. In in an article I read on loneliness this last week, studies show that loneliness is worse for our health than obesity, smoking, lack of access to healthcare, and physical activity. And on the pastor level, as a pastor, I've, just been, I've been pastoring this church for the last seven years in the city, it's like I just have to tell you that I've probably had more conversations with people who are feeling lonely than I've had conversations about anything else as a pastor. And so, like, guys, I, I just want to say this isn't only out there, it's in here. It's like, it's, it's, it's you and it's me. It's like we feel, we're surrounded by all of these people, but we, fail, we feel incredibly lonely. It becomes obvious that we need a better way. We need a different way of, of doing things than what, we've, than what we've been doing. We need to kind of wake up, and this is what I'm praying today is, we need to wake up to this trend and realize that we are not made to bowl alone. Get into a bowling league. Jump into the church. We're not made to bowl alone. We need to think about how to move away from self-centered, radical individualism where we're only concerned with ourselves and our own needs and toward other-centered communal life. And the good news is this is the way of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. This is practice number two, a devotion to community, a commitment to war against the radical individualism in our hearts and move toward other-centered, sacrificial love, a devotion to community. Let's look at Acts 2, verse 42. It says this. They, these are the people that just came to faith, so in Acts chapter, at chapter 2, 1 through 41, uh, Peter gets up and he tells people about Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God falls in power, and 3,000 people came to faith. And right here in verse 42, we're seeing the birth of the church and the first few things that these new Christians devoted themselves to. They, that's who they is, devoted themselves. So they didn't just like, just kind of casually go about these things that we're preaching on. They devoted their whole life to these things. They go, man, we're, we're about these things now. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We looked at that last week. To the fellowship, that's this week, and here's the next couple weeks. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. The second marker of a New Testament disciple and a New Testament church is a devotion to the fellowship. They didn't dip into the fellowship when it was convenient. Is that okay for me to say, guys? They didn't dip into the fellowship when it was convenient. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, this is a weird word for us, fellowship. Let's talk about this. That's a very churchy word. You know, you're like, you don't hear, you don't, in casual conversation with your coworker, what'd you do this weekend? I was just fellowshipping, you know? I was just fellowshipping. You're like, that, if anybody says that, they are for sure a Christian nerd, right? So what is, what do we mean by like, what do we mean by this word fellowship? Well, in in the original language, it's the word koinonia, which many of you have probably heard. It's the word koinonia. Uh, One Greek dictionary defines koinonia like this, uh, an association involving close, mutual relationship and involvement. This is what they devoted themselves to. An, an association with one another involving close, mutual relationship and involvement. One scholar describes this as simply a devotion to being together physically, shared life. 
they were together, sharing life, to living in harmonious unity, which are like, yeah, I would love that. I'd love some people to do that with. And community. Eugene Peterson in the message translates koinonia as simply life together, which is the theme of our year, figuring out what it means to live life together, live into this beautiful vision that we find in Acts chapter 2. Now, here's the very simple reality I want you to see. Here's a very simple reality. Before we get into the complexity of this and what's holding us back from living into this, all of that, why we don't experience it, all of that, here's the very simple reality. To become a follower of Jesus in the New Testament meant that you are drawn out of isolation into a new koinonia fellowship with other followers of Jesus. So sometimes you hear the question, okay, like, can I be a Jesus follower or can I be a Christian without being devoted to a church? You guys ever ask that question or have that question asked for? Can I be a Christian without a devotion to the church? And the answer to that is actually pretty complex. It's like, well, yeah, kinda. Yeah, kinda. We're not saved by koinonia, right? Uh, We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, right? And by placing our faith in Jesus. So like, that's salvation. But the hard part about that question is like, the New Testament doesn't address it because it just kind of assumes life in koinonia. You see, in the New Testament, like, there's no such thing. It just doesn't exist as a follower of Jesus that is not also devoted to a koinonia. You see, all of the letters in the New Testament are written to what? Koinonias, communities. Like everything, the whole life with Jesus thing is communal. The New Testament, like I said, has no category for a follower of Jesus that is alone. We're not devoted to a koinonia. Living life together with other Jesus followers is central to the vision of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This is just just Acts 2, man. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. How are you doing? You devoted to the fellowship? Following Jesus? You dipping in or are you devoted? That's the question. That's the question. Now, why? Why? Well, let's do some biblical theology together. We love to zoom out when we get the chance and take a topic and kind of like look at it through the storyline of Scripture. If we zoom out and look at the whole story of the Bible, we see why koinonia is so central to Jesus' vision of salvation and discipleship, that these things go together. Salvation, discipleship, koinonia are always held together. All the way back at the beginning in the creation story, we see that God creates Adam, the man, And in Genesis chapter 2, he makes this definitive statement about humanity. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, he says this. We'll put it up on the screen. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. Of course, this is a, a comment on marriage, on the bond of marriage, right? And he creates Eve as a companion for Adam, but it's true more broadly as well. It is not good for people to do life alone. Of course, this is the case because we are created in the image of God who has eternally existed as a communal being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in constant, beautiful fellowship with one another. You are created in the image of that God, so you long for that kind of fellowship. And here's the point. You, no matter who you are, no matter how lonely you feel, you were not created to do life alone. You weren't. We were created to need other people. As much as we hate needing other people, like, I don't want to inconvenience you. We're going to talk about inconvenience here in a little bit. I don't want to inconvenience you. You were created to need people. You were created to want people. 
So this is like when you're sitting on your couch alone, you're like, another Netflix episode. I wish, I wish I had some friends. Why do you feel that? Why do you feel that? Another episode of The Crown. I wish I was playing cards. Why, why do you, I don't mean to like, people really feel, I feel, I feel this. Why do we feel that? Well, it's because you were created for life together with other people. We were created for attachment to other people. And I want to talk about attachment theory here in just a second. It's not good for us to be alone. It's not good for us to be alone. Many people, we live in a highly transient city, so I think we feel this a little bit more acutely. If you've, not all of you have moved here to, to downtown Denver, but many of you, even if you grew up in the suburbs, you're, you've moved to downtown Denver and you're like, man, I feel this like overwhelming sense of loneliness. Why? Why? Well, it's because you were created for life together with other people. It's built into your DNA. It's in your bones. It's in your bones. Now, what's fascinating is that this is a place, and this is often true, where biology and theology agree. Science actually shows us that we are created to, to attach to other people. I always love Eugene Peterson's quote on faith and science. He says, faith and science are opposed to one another like a, foot, a thumb and an index finger. You need both to get a grasp on reality. That is true. So here we get a little grasp. Some of you really like that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so here's where we get a grasp on our relational reality. The psychiatrist, Dr. Dan Siegel, and the psychotherapist, Dr. Tina Bryson, talk about how every person is born for, uh, born for relational attachment marked by the four S's. We'll put these four S's of relational attachment up here on the screen. We are born for relational attachment that is marked by these four S's. Someone to make us feel safe, someone who makes us feel seen, who sees our needs, someone who will soothe us, who will celebrate. Soothing has two components, celebrating with when, we, when, we want to, when we need to be celebrated and weeping when we need to weep. You, some of you are like, that's Romans 12. You're exactly right, that's Romans 12. And, uh, and secure, that this, this relationship's secure. It's not going anywhere. This is why uh, a, a newborn baby, when, it, when it's born, the very first thing it does is it, is it cries. And what it's doing is it's crying out, expressing its need for attachment that will make it feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure. This is why my son, I've got a four-month-old son. His name's Lil Shep, Lil Sheppy. I call him Peppy. That's his little nickname that I have. I have about 10 nicknames for him. So this is why Shep like, wakes up in the middle of the night still, and he's crying. Why? Why is he crying in the middle of the night? Well, he's looking for somebody. Let's keep the four S's up there. He's looking for somebody who will make him feel safe who will see his need, who will soothe and provide what he's looking for. He's like, he's a pretty simple guy. You know, as you get older, you get more complex, but he's like, I've got poop in my diaper, you know, and I need you to fix this situation. I need you to soothe me by fixing this situation. I need some food or I need, you know, I'm tired or whatever. I need to be rocked or whatever. And he's looking for security, someone who will continually do this over and over again. And what these experts point out is that human beings never outgrow the need for attachment marked by these four S's. So here's the point. You, no matter how old you are, men, I want to talk to you, no matter how manly you are, okay, you are not created. I'm talking to the men, that's why I'm being a little bit like, you are not created for life alone, no matter, like, I, I kind of have, like, I want to I talk to the men for a second. No matter how, like, man, I want to talk to the manliest man in the room. The one who can, like, lift the most weight. I kind of have in my mind, this is for the men, Liver King. You guys know Liver King? It's like, <laughs> some of you are like, some of you are like, I don't know Liver King. Don't. Don't know Liver King. 
But Liver King's like super buff. He's hyper buff. He's like got an Instagram following, whatever. He's like hyper buff, manly, beard. He eats raw liver and he holds it like this. He's like, if you will eat raw liver, you will be as buff as me. It's like he projects himself as the manliest man. Well, here's what I want you to know. Liver King needs attachment that will make him feel safe, seen, soothed, secure. Here's my point. Here's my point. It's like whether you're like here and you're like, yes, I feel that, or you're folding your arms right now like, I don't need anybody. We do. We do. This is what we long for. It's what you're built for, relationships that are marked by the four S's. It's not good for people to be alone. But in Genesis chapter 3, one chapter later, I'm still, Liver King was not in my notes. And I'm like, <laughs> should I have done the Liver King? I don't know. If you get on Instagram and find something very inappropriate in Liver King, I did not ever talk about Liver King, okay? Uh, but uh, is, this, is what we're, this is what we're made for. But in Genesis 3, one chapter later, we have relational breakdown. We have relational breakdown. Adam and Eve disobey God. In their relationship, their horizontal relationship, there's all kinds of breaking of relationship with God. We're not talking about that. Their, their horizontal relationship with one another goes from safe, seen, sued, secure to hiding from one another. So they're not only hiding from God, but they're hiding from one another. They're blaming one another. This is what you see happen in the garden post-fall. Is like, she made me do it. And he's like, she's like, bah. and you know, it's like the Spider-Man meme where they're pointing at each other. <laughs> Not my fault. They're blaming each other, accusing one another. We see this move in Genesis 3 from trust and attachment to mistrust and detachment. This is the relational reality. And all of a sudden, every relationship starts to feel like it's marked by being the opposite of God's good intention. So I brought a chart, a little sermon of mine's not complete without a chart. Uh, over here on the left, we have Genesis 1 and 2 relationships marked by being safe, soothed, seen, and secure. But what we have happen in Genesis chapter 3 is everything falls apart, and this becomes our relational reality, and you feel this in your relationships. Relationships are marked by feeling unsafe. It's like we ask the question, yeah, 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 they kind of like me, but if they really knew the real me, would they still like me? It's unsafe. It's unsafe. Uh, relationships feel painful. What you know is as you get deeper into life, the deepest pain you will feel in life is relational pain. Deep pain. Pain of a child that goes the way you don't want them to go. I haven't experienced that, but I can imagine. The pain of a divorce. Some of you have been through the pain of a divorce. You're like, man, the deep relational pain. The pain of a betrayal in friendship where you're like, man, there was this misunderstanding and they just like left me and now they don't text me back and I don't know what to do. Pain. You're like, yeah, I, I've been in Genesis 3 relationships. Self-centered. So instead of seeing each other, we're only seeing our own needs and we enter into every relational situation, whether it's small talk or we're trying to go deep and we're like more concerned with ourselves than we are the other and insecure. We're like, will you be here long-term for me? feels insecure. Now, what you can use, what you can do is, I think this is a great paradigm for relationship, for any relationship. This is a great paradigm for friendship. It's a great paradigm for marriage. It's a great paradigm for parenting. So you can go. Now, what you would typically be prone to do with a chart like this is think about how all the other people that are, quote unquote, friends in your life are not these things. But can I just ask you this question? Are you those things? Are you those things? 
Because usually when we start living into this, being this kind of person, these kinds of people, we'll, we'll start building a culture around us. Am I safe? Am I a safe person? Do people feel like I will, like if they disclose reality to me that I'll be like, toxic. I mean, this is what we do. I don't have time to like get on this. But guys, that's very dangerous. It makes you an un... Now, there are actually toxic people, and if that's true of you and you're in therapy with a good therapist, do it. But, like, be careful. Be, be, am I a safe person? Am I a soother? Am I somebody that some people can come to with their problems? Do I see other people's need? And do I provide relational security to the people around me? A great paradigm. Do I do this in my parenting? Do I do this in my marriage? Do I do this in my roommate situation? You see, oh, this is beautiful. We want to move from this to this. Now, I've got to move on. One chapter later, Genesis 3, this becomes the reality. This becomes our relational reality over here. One chapter later, Genesis 4, there's the first murder, which is the ultimate relational breakdown, the collapse of everything, the ultimate disintegration of all of God's good relational intention. And this is the reality of our world. We live over here. We live over here. So this is why, even as I say, it's community day, some of you are like, oh, because you're exhausted by this, and this is all you can imagine now, right? This is the reality of our world. You feel this Genesis 3 reality. You feel it in your own sense of loneliness and longing. You see it in your family systems, in your friendships. Are we really friends or not? Because you haven't texted me back in 10 days. You know, texting back is a big deal to me. That's a, that is a soap box for me. If I text you and you don't text me back, I just think you don't like me, okay? <laughs> That's true. There are other people. Where are my people that feel that way? Thank you. Thank you, guys. I love you. I love you. Text is not email anyways. Are we really friends or not? In, your, in, our, in our marriages, we feel this. In our parenting, we feel this. Often we experience this in church too. We feel this in community group. Can I trust you? Why don't I feel close to you? And it's into this Genesis 3 relational reality that Jesus enters in and starts to build the koinonia. Jesus comes to the disciples and he says, follow me. And the call to follow him to the disciples is a call into koinonia community. Don't miss this. Jesus builds a little community around him. So like discipleship is not individualistic at all. At all. Even with Jesus. Come follow me. Very diverse community. I don't have time. I wanted to preach on that more, but... People from all kinds of backgrounds, different from each other. They likely disagreed politically with each other. All kinds of stuff there. But Jesus comes to the disciples and says, follow me. And it's a call into this new Koinonia community. And Jesus is teaching them, you can read the Gospels through this lens, a new relational dynamic. Constantly doing this. Constantly teaching them a new relational dynamic. He's undoing the relational dynamic of Genesis 3 that we all despise but feel stuck in, and he's leading the disciples and in turn us back into Genesis 1 and 2 relational realities. This is what the kingdom of God, this is part of the kingdom of God, is a new relational dynamic. You see, Jesus himself is the best friend. This is beautiful. He comes as, he's called the friend of sinners. So you see this, Jesus, ultimate friend, Jesus is safe. He's the friend of sinners. So to the most broken people, lonely, destitute, made a big mess of, our, of their lives. Jesus is safe. 
He sees people, he soothes them, and he secures them in the Father's love. That's the gospel, my goodness. This is this is what Jesus, this is the friendship of Jesus, and this is how Jesus teaches a new relational dynamic. And he's teaching his disciples, and in turn us, how to live this way again. This is what Jesus is all about. This is why it's such good news that Jesus is called the friend of sinners. We say this all the time, that Jesus came to save, and what we're seeing here is that part of salvation is that Jesus came to bring us into a relational salvation, to heal this relational break that we all experience all the time. He came to create a new community with a new dynamic of relational attachment marked by safety, being seen, being soothed, and being secure. This is what Jesus came to build. This is the koinonia. It's the kingdom of God community. This is why in Acts chapter 2, what we're studying today, as we watch the church come into existence, the second thing they devote themselves to is deep relationship with one another. This is the vision of what the relational reality in the church should be. It overtakes all kinds of diversity, where it's like, man, this kingdom community is different than, than any other community because there are people that are not like each other there. And typically, like outside of this place, would not be together. The community's growing, so this is where you feel the, the, the tension of deep and wide, but here in just a second, you'll see that they had fellowship, but here in a few weeks, you'll see that the number of people being saved was, the number of people, um, that it was growing, sorry, I'm getting confused. It was growing really quickly, and people every day were coming to faith and being added to this koinonia, wild. And so it's like deep and wide and rich and diverse. It's beautiful. Eugene Peterson calls the church a colony of heaven in a land of death. Love this. A colony of heaven in a land of death. That in here, in community group, we are building a relational kingdom of heaven counterculture to the surrounding culture. That's what the church is intended to be. Out there in the world, we see and experience Genesis 3 relationships, accusation, shame, backbiting, stepping on others to get ahead, distrust, anger, slander, jealousy, envy, all of it. But in here, we're building a counterculture of other-centered love. This is the vision of the church. A Genesis 1 and 2 haven of relational safety and beauty where no one's ultimately alone. This is the vision of what the church should be. Now, if I'm you, I'm sitting there and I'm going, that is really idealistic, buddy. Really idealistic. That feels idealistic. If you've been around the church, you're probably thinking to yourself, yeah, like, great vision. I get it. I get how the gospel creates that, that this is what Jesus was wanting to do. But, like, I haven't experienced that. And you can start to, you can hear this vision. You can start to think, man, like, that's not even possible to build a community like that. But here's what I came to tell you today. It must be possible. It must be. We have to give everything. We have to devote ourselves to building this kind of community. So what I want to do here is I want to talk about five barriers to this kind of life together and how we can overcome them so that we can build, right here at the Heights, a haven of relational beauty where we experience the kingdom of God. Barrier number one is individualism. Barrier number one is individualism. We opened up with this, but we've been radically shaped to put ourselves before anyone else. It's like, this is the mindset of the world, right? That like, I look out for numero uno. If you don't fit into my agenda, 
I'm done with you, I don't need you. And we, and we bring that into community, but friends, listen to me. We cannot bring the mindset of the world into the church and expect to build the counterculture here. We can't. We've got to get rid of our individualism and our self-centeredness and enter into the community asking what can I give instead of what can I get? Where we move toward, an, where we're oriented, where we're entering into this gathering, where we're entering into community, into community group going, man, I'm orienting myself toward self-giving love. I'm not a consumer, I'm a contributor. I show up to make people feel loved and seen and cared for and secure here. So Paul, in Romans chapter 12, he, he's addressing this kind of individualism in the church, and he says this. He says, church in Rome, you got to build the counterculture in Rome. Rome's brutal. Rome's brutal. Oh, it's brutal. It's a brutal place to live. You guys know the movies about the Romans? And he goes, hey, church in Rome, I want you to build the counterculture of love. I want you to build the koinonia. Here it is. Here's how you can do it. Romans 12, verse 10, and then 13 through 17. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Building a new family. Take the lead in honoring one another. The world, relational reality of the world is marked by slander. Here's what I want you to do. Personally, I want you to take the lead in honoring one another. Oh, man, so-and-so, you're really good at X. I want to honor you for that. Take the lead in honoring one another. Share with the saints in their needs. We're going to talk about being a generous community. No needs among us here in a few weeks. Pursue hospitality. Open up your homes to each other. Don't be cut off. Pursue hospitality. Welcome the stranger in. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This is seen and soothed. Seen and soothed. Paul's writing about seen and soothed right here. He's got direct revelation from heaven on seen and soothed. Rejoice with those who rejoice. It's like, man, whenever you graduate, whenever you get the promotion, whenever you get engaged, whenever you find what you're looking, whenever you buy the house, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna rejoice with you. <laughs> but when, a, when, a, when life goes the opposite way, we're gonna weep with you. We're gonna sit and you're like, man, in that loss, we're just gonna weep with you. We're just gonna sit. We're not gonna offer answers. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Pride is the destroyer of koinonia. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. We're not eye for eye people. Well, you did this, so I'm going to do that. This is how my daughters do life together, you know? You did this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you harder, you know? It's like, we don't do that. We don't do that. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, I love this line, live at peace with everyone as far as it depends on you. So don't quit worrying about everybody else. As far as it depends on you. Individualism. Individualism. I did a little word study on this, and 50 verses in the New Testament have one another commands. One another. We're going to do a little series this summer on the one another's of the New Testament to talk about, keep talking about life together of how we should care for one another, love one another, forgive one another, honor one another. The individualism of our cultural moment cannot have sway if we want the fellowship. Fellowship. Number two, barrier number two is idealism. Idealism. Uh, in his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community even though their personal intentions may ever be so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. 
point, if you let your idealism of what should be overtake what is, and you go, there's got to be better community out there, you'll destroy the very Christian community that you're a part of. You will. So many people dip their toes into the waters of Christian community and leave because their idealism keeps them from loving the actual people in front of them. So it's like, here's what you can do in community group. We're going to relaunch community groups next week, I believe. Some are launching this week, this week and next week. You can get in the circle, stare each other deep in the eyes, it'll be uncomfortable, and go, this is what you got. (laughs) I'm your community, and you're mine, and one of the best things you could do is go, I'm not going anywhere. Because like, the tendency is to think, there's probably a better community group out there with people that are not as weird. <laughs> and it's like, if you let your idealism get in there, it'll wreck the actual community you have. And you gotta realize, guys, Koinonia doesn't live in fantasy, the fantasy land of idealism. The rest of the New Testament is literally made up of letters addressing problems in the Koinonia, Okay? That's what it's all about. So starting after Easter, we're going to do a study through 1 Corinthians. It's like in 1 Corinthians, literally, they're having sex with each other in the koinonia. And Paul's going, guys, you can't do that. Uh, They're coming up here and getting the communion wine. And they're sucking it down, getting drunk on the communion wine. And Paul's going, can't do that, guys. I I can't be there. I'm in prison right now, but I'm just writing this little letter. Quit drinking too much of the communion wine. This is literally a problem in the New Testament. Problems in the koinonia. The koinonia is not perfect. It's messy because we're imperfect people. I heard John Mark Comer call the church Jesus' school of love. So this is a school, and we're all learning how to love each other. And so what that means is since we're learning, we will mess up. It's like this is the place where we are learning to deconstruct the relational realities of the world, and we're relearning the ways of the kingdom of God. Genesis 1 and 2 relationships, so we'll mess up. The church is messy. Paul says this to the church in Colossae, chapter 3. Verses 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Let me just ask you a question. What kind of people do you have to bear with? Answer, hard people. I mean, there's some people in here, me being one of them, that you're going to have to bear with, man. It's like bearing with one. These people are hard to love at the church in Colossae. And he's going, hey, if you guys would do me a favor, just bear with one another. We're trying to build safe relationships, secure relationships, where people feel seen and soothed. That's what we're trying to build in the church. If you guys could just bear with one another and stop being mean, that'd be awesome. This is Paul. How practical is that? And if one has a complaint against one another, here it is, forgive one, each other, forgive each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. He goes, Jesus has forgiven you of a lot, so you should forgive one another of a lot. Forgive each other. What kind of people do you have to forgive? People that sin against you. So here's the thing, guys. Here's what, here's what we're saying. You will, if you become a part of this koinonia and you devote yourself to this koinonia right here that stands over the banner of the heights, you will likely be sinned against. You need to know that. You will, you will encounter difficult people. I am difficult person number one. Welcome. And you're going to have to bear with people. This is part of life together. This is why we have to learn to forgive one another instead of like going like, you know, there's another koinonia across, across the city. Why don't we try bearing with one another first? That sounded harsh. Let me say that kinder. Guys, 
instead of going, man, there's another great church across the city, maybe we try bearing with one another. Maybe that's the tone, okay? Instead of going, man, I've got relational hurt in this koinonia, so I'm gonna go find, a, find another koinonia. This is the school of love. Maybe we need to grow in love and we need to learn how to forgive. It's not easy, but, but, it's, but it's the vision of the kingdom of God. Have you ever noticed this, that we are often the worst version of ourselves with the people that we're closest to? We are. So let's just be okay that, with that and bear with one another and forgive one another. And here's a little pastoral warning. You can spend your whole life driven by your idealism trying to find better community and, a better, and better friends. You can't. But you will find yourself incredibly lonely. You will. So don't let your, don't let your idealism keep you from loving the actual people right in, front of, right in front of you. Number three, intimidation. Intimidation. New relationships are intimidating. I want to speak to this really quickly on, on two fronts. If you're new here, don't let intimidation of the Christian community, showing up at community group, plugging in and serving, getting involved, don't let it keep you from this vision, this beautiful vision in Acts 2. But I'll speak to the other side. If you've been a part of the Heights for a few years, you feel hyper, hyper connected, you've got really good friends here, I want you to develop vision for the person that doesn't feel that way here yet. It's like, man, we want to be includers of the excluded. And so, like, it's great that you have your little friend group here. I'm glad you have your little friend group here. This should be a network of friend groups. That's great. But always be willing to open up your friend group to the new person. Because it's intimidating, man. Let's not let intimidation keep us from building koinonia. Number four is inconvenience. The reality of community is that it's inconvenient. It takes time. People are often difficult and exhausting. We can have a hard time getting along with each other. We talked about that. But the only other alternative to being inconvenienced by people is loneliness. That's the, that's the only other alternative. So guys, I feel this. I feel this. My community group kicks off tonight. And you guys know, I just want to speak for a moment to the moment, to the, to the moment of decision on community. You guys know the feeling. Let's say your community group's on Tuesday night. It's January, you get off work, it's dark, it's cold, likely snowing. And you come to the moment of koinonia decision. Do I go? And you, you, you weigh it on the scales. And if you're me, you go, gosh, look at home. I could get the little gas fireplace going and I could get the Trader Joe's fried rice and orange chicken out and pot stickers. Like, that is a feast for me. I could eat all of that by myself in one sitting. I love that. I could make a little tea, get the crown going on Netflix if you're into the crown. If you're not into the crown, you can go to Breakpoint if you're into tennis, new, new, new series on Netflix. It's like you start getting into that and then you're like, I just slide into bed about 9.15, have a great, great little evening. Or I go and sit kind of awkwardly and have awkward conversations, small talk, and then I come home late, I quickly get in the shower, go to bed, and I'm tired the next morning, the moment of decision. The question is, which one are you gonna decide? And it's like, the fried rice sounds good, man. Sounds really nice. The potstickers sound amazing. Just put those on, oh, those are good. A little soy sauce, I mean the potstickers. Guys, what I would say is inconvenience yourself for the good of other people. Fight for it. 
you're gonna get to the moment of decision. Fight for the koinonia. Fight for the koinonia. Go, show up. Uh, I heard that there's a shift. I learned this from some of our staff that are, this is hard to believe, but they're younger than me, um, by about a decade, and they're teaching me new terms. And the new term is no longer, it's no longer FOMO, fear of missing out, that keeps you from committing to community, but it's FOBO, the fear of better options. You guys into FOBO? I'm looking over here. You guys into FOBO? Yeah, FOBO, fear of better options. Guys, listen. If you're always waiting for something better to come along, you will never find community inconvenience yourself. And even if a better option with cooler people comes up, fight for koinonia. Fight for koinonia, it'll be better. Number five is technology. Technology. Koinonia is not just connection. We are deeply connected people via technology. We are deeply connected people via technology, but you cannot and I cannot build koinonia on Instagram, TikTok, Be Real, Facebook, GroupMe, or texts. We can't. You cannot build koinonia by tuning in online. Though I'm happy you're here online, get here in person and contribute to the koinonia. Koinonia, come on, I'm looking in the camera for you. Come here, please. We can't do this online. The koinonia is not listening to podcasts. It's not going, ah, I'm tired this morning. Guys, the koinonia is showing up. It's just showing up. Greg Allison, the the scholar uh, on the church, calls the church spatiotemporal. And what he means by that is the church has always and will always exist in time and space with physical people. This is where discipleship takes place. It's where we, we learn to love real people. Like if this is just a podcast and it's just online, you will never have to forgive anybody. It's like it's not the, it's not the vision of the New Testament. The vision of Acts 2 is physical life together. Here's what we're saying in this series. If we want the power of the New Testament church, we have to devote ourselves to the practices of the New Testament church. And practice number two is the koinonia. It's a devotion. We're not dipping in when it's convenient. It's a devotion to the fellowship. We'll close by looking at these lines of Jesus from John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says this, He says, I give you a new command. Love one another. He's looking at his disciples and he's going, hey guys, I want to give you a new command. I want you to orient your whole life around this command. Love one another. And then he goes on to say this, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Now, I love this qualifier right here. Just as I have loved you, how has Jesus Christ loved you? Well, he's loved you sacrificially. The measure of his love is the, the love that leaves heaven and sacrifices the love of the Father, the presence of the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit, all the goodness of heaven. This is how Jesus loved you. He sacrifices everything, and he enters into this broken relational reality. And he dies. He sacrifices his life for you and for me so that we could be forgiven, reconciled to the Father, restored. This is how Jesus has loved us. And he goes, okay, now, just as I have loved you, so we're clear on what the love of Jesus is, love one another. What's that mean? I want you to love each other sacrificially. I want you to give everything to love each other. And he says, why? By this, by your love for each other, Everyone will know that you are my disciples if 
you love one another. Guys, the church, the koinonia, has a bad reputation. We gotta admit this. We as Jesus followers have not done a good job of building the counterculture of love. And so as we end, I just wanna ask you, what's holding you back? I can't build this thing from a stage. It's gonna take all of us. Go, man, I'm gonna fight individualism. I'm gonna fight my idealism. I'm going to fight inconvenience. I'm not going to be intimidated. I'm not just going to like settle for the podcast because I can listen to Corbin on the podcast, though I hope it serves you if you're traveling. It's like I'm going to fight for it. I'm going to devote myself for it. I'm going to devote myself to it. What barrier do you need to work to tear down through the power of the Holy Spirit so we can build the counterculture right here? A church community that feels safe. A church community where people are seen where you're like, man, I, I feel like people see me. A church community that soothes one another in our highs and our lows. And a church community that feels secure, like it's not going anywhere. They're not going to bail on me. It's like what we're all longing for. What even the people that don't know Jesus yet in our city are longing for is the koinonia. So guys, let's build it. Other-centered love. Sacrificial love love one another, forgive one another, care for one another, devoting ourselves to community. Let's build it. If you feel like you're not a part of community yet, we've got a community group connect lunch next Sunday after church. Show up next Sunday. We'll provide lunch. You can jump into a new community group. I think we're launching four or five new groups, so they're all new. Like These people haven't been together for a long time. We would love that. It's next week. We'd love to help you dive in. Let's build the koinonia. Let's build it. Let me pray for us, and then Anna's going to come up and talk about response. Jesus, uh, thank you for the koinonia. Thank you for the way that you've loved us. Thank you for the way that you are our friend. What a beautiful picture of friendship the gospel is, that while we were sinning against you, you drew near to us. You sacrificed for us. You forgave us. You reconciled with us. And now our relationship with you is marked by peace because of the cross and the resurrection. And now we want those gospel realities to mark our relational realities, God. So I just pray for our church family where there are broken relationships that need to be restored. We welcome you to come and restore. Where people are feeling lonely, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower them to dive in and take a next step toward community. As we prepare to take communion, I pray for moments of reconciliation where we need to ask for forgiveness and extend forgiveness. God, we want Genesis 1 and 2 relationships to mark our church family. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples. We want to be disciples marked by love for one another. So Holy Spirit, come and produce this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.